0: Hi, and welcome to PIMPT OBGYN, a podcast aimed at helping you excel at your clinical clerkship in OB/GYN. I'm Dr. Jennifer Dory, a third-year resident at Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia, and founder of PIMPT, a medical flashcard app. Welcome back to PIMPT. Let's talk about a topic that you're going to see a whole lot of during your outpatient portion of your OBGYN rotation. So we're going to talk about initial prenatal visits. So an initial prenatal visit when somebody comes in for the first time after a confirmed pregnancy, there's a whole lot to do and to talk about. These are usually a little bit longer appointments, slightly more in depth, particularly if it's a first time mom. So the way I start off any um, encounter with a patient with a newly diagnosed pregnancy is finding out, one, if this pregnancy was planned, and number two, if it's desired. If it is unplanned but desired, great. Um, If it is planned and desired even better, hopefully that means they were taking prenatal vitamins, not drinking alcohol, doing all of those things. Um, And if it's undesired, then we're going to have to talk about options counseling and things like that, which is not what we're going to get into today. So for today, we're going to assume that this is a desired pregnancy. Um, So the basic thing everybody gets during their initial prenatal visit is a thorough history and physical, including a pelvic exam and a pap smear if needed, um, and usually STI, so sexually transmitted infection testing uh, for everyone as well while we're doing the pelvic exam. Um, there you can also do other things depending on what you find in that H and P. But we're going to go through just the basics for let's assume a young, healthy person. So after the pelvic exam and Pap smear and everything, uh, usually if I have an ultrasound available in the office and can do a quick ultrasound for dating and for confirmation of location of pregnancy, so ideally I'm finding a pregnancy in her uterus and not in a tube or something like that. Um, but if I can see a pregnancy and date it. Great. That makes, um, lets me know exactly how far along she is in her pregnancy and confirm it either with her last menstrual period or, um, confirm that it's different than her last menstrual period if necessary. Um, if you don't have an ultrasound available in your office, you're usually just be writing um, a prescription or a referral for a patient to get an ultrasound at this first visit. All right. So we've done our, our full H and P, Um, we've done an ultrasound hopefully, and now we just kind of got to, there's a whole lot of talking. So we're going to talk to her about a lot of things. We're going to talk to her first about genetic options for screening, um, So I want to talk to her about the different um, screening options for aneuploidy. Most women, that's what we're going to do is screening. We're not going to do necessarily testing unless the screening is abnormal. But there's a lot of different screenings nowadays. So there's a quad screen, which is um, a slightly older screen that people are, I think, moving away from a little bit more. It screens for four things in the serum, the maternal serum. So it screens for AFP or alpha fetal protein, estriol, beta HCG, and inhibin A. Based on the levels of those four things, they're able to determine a risk, um, which comes back as a ratio, like a one in 50 is a very high screen versus a one in 10,000 is a very low screen um, for aneuploidy, particularly Down syndrome. So the quad screen, um, just a one-time cross-sectional, um, look in time. The newer screen involves, um, two different points in time. So, uh, the newer ones are called usually the sequential screen. So the sequential screen includes, um, two serum tests a couple weeks apart and the integration of a nuchal translucency, which is, um, a ultrasound examination of the thickness of the distance between uh, the baby's spinal cord and the outside of the back of the neck skin, essentially. Uh, and it's a very specific, small measurement that um, trained ultrasonographers do. We don't do this in the office ever. Um, this is, you know, a high-tech ultrasound machine and a very well-trained sonographer do this in uh, usually a maternal fetal medicine or an ultrasound office, Um And with that distance and the serum markers from the two different points in time, they're able to come up with a more accurate, um, more sensitive and specific uh, screening test for aneuploidy. So that's the sequential screen and the quad screen. The newer one that you'll probably hear um, people mention is cell-free DNA or free um, fetal DNA, also known as the NIPS or the NIPT. So the non-invasive prenatal screening or the non-invasive prenatal testing. So really it's a screening test. So NIPS, although a lot of people have been calling it the NIPT, um, it is not a definitive test, although it does have a very high sensitivity um, for certain aneuploidies. So the um, non-invasive prenatal screening or the um, cell-free DNA takes maternal serum again. And within this maternal serum, it spins it down and is able to isolate some fetal DNA within the maternal serum. And from that fetal DNA, the hope is that um, they can tell if there's any increased risk of the baby being, usually um, looking at trisomy 21, 18, and 13. So the main trisomies. um, And Also, they can test for um, gender chromosomes, X and Y chromosomes, although not all offices choose to receive this information. Um, So that is becoming um, the, I think it's the more in vogue screening at the moment, especially amongst patients, because um, it's just maternal serum. It's one time and it has a pretty good sensitivity and specificity. The downside to it is it doesn't tell you anything about other types of genetic um, abnormalities, anomalies, or things like that. So usually if we're going to do that, we're going to at least add um, an AFP or you'll hear us say MS AFP or maternal serum, alpha fetal protein, um, just to determine, try to determine the risk of a neural tube defect as well. Um, any of those that we just talked about, the quad screen, the sequential screen, there's also one called the integrated screen. They're all in that same line um, or the NIPT, NAPS. Um, these are all screening tests. And I keep calling them screening tests because they don't actually have the true isolated fetal genome. Um, While the free fetal DNA is attempting to isolate the fetal cells, it can also isolate maternal cancer cells because they're different from the maternal serum, maternal mosaic cells, if mom is actually uh, mosaicism or placental mosaicism. So it's not 100%. So to be 100%, we really need to get cells directly from the fetus. So if something were to come back abnormal on the screening test, or if mom is AMA and just higher risk and wants a definitive test and no She wants a definitive test, she can opt for invasive testing. So invasive testing, we have a couple options. If we're um, early on, we can do a CVS, a chorionic villi sampling, um, which is essentially taking a, a needle and taking a small sample of the placenta, those placental cells, and then looking at those cells um, as an isolate of the fetal DNA. If you're further along, we can do an amniocentesis, which is a needle through mom's belly um, into the amniotic sac, withdrawing a little bit of that amniotic fluid, which has fetal skin cells in it, and then using those fetal skin cells um, to run a variety of tests. So on those cells, we can run karyotypes, microarrays, fishes, um, all of the usual uh, genetic screenings and if we know exactly what we're looking for we can run portions of genome to look for particular things. So though that is the prenatal screening and prenatal testing so usually I just just it's complicated obviously so I start by asking mom if she would want to know if there was potentially something um, abnormal genetically about the baby and most people are familiar with the idea of Down syndrome so I usually say like things like Down syndrome. There's a couple different ways we can go about it. We can try and figure out if you're high risk or low risk. Um, if you would just you know only want to pursue testing if you were high risk, and I change the conversation depending on we you know what mom's risk factors are. Um, and even if mom said, well, I wouldn't term you know I wouldn't terminate the pregnancy, I wouldn't end the pregnancy, I wouldn't change my mind about the pregnancy if there's anything abnormal, I think it's still valid to raise the question. Well, would would it change the way you'd prepare? Would it would it help you to know ahead of time, um, just to have you and your family and everyone who's going to be in that delivery room? um be expecting what's coming you know and no it's perfectly reasonable to be happy and welcoming with any kind of surprise that's going to come but i think it's also very reasonable for people to want to have time to prepare read learn explain you know discuss with family members and really have everybody on board to make it a really happy um joyous delivery room rather than kind of a scary surprise which anomalies can be for moms um so kind of talk about the options And depending on where they are gestational age-wise, we might be limited in options, but then kind of going through all of their different options and figuring out what screening, if any, they want. So that is honestly the portion that takes the longest. The screening takes a while, depending on how familiar moms are with this stuff, because there's a lot of options and there's a lot of different ways you can go. If they are high risk for anything, most of the major academic centers are going to have genetic counseling as an option. And we can always send moms over to genetic counseling if they need further information um, or more particular screening for certain things. Um, then after I talk about screening, I kind of get into the general pregnancy stuff. So this is stuff that if you guys know as medical students, you can be super helpful in telling patients and kind of talking to them about ahead of time before I get in there. Um, if the patient has any questions, um, you feel comfortable answering them. So first off, I talk about weight gain during pregnancy. Obesity is a major problem, um, in America right now. We've, with a lot of reproductive age women um, being obese or overweight. Um, and people had this notion that they are supposed to, quote unquote, eat for two, which is really not true. You're gonna need only about 300 extra calories a day to sustain a pregnancy. Um, that's about a soda. It's not a whole lot. Um, and so people think that they get to eat for two sometimes. So I like to start off the pregnancy by setting some expectations. So if a woman is underweight, if she is uh, her BMI is under 18.5, Total weight gain in her pregnancy should be 28 to 40 pounds. It's not a whole lot. It's definitely not, you know, eating for two level. Um, if you're normal weight, so if your BMI is 18.5 um, to 24.9, it should be 25 to 35 pounds. If you're overweight, so 20, BMI 25 to 30, you're aiming for 15 to 25 pounds weight gain. And if you are obese, which we just said a lot of reproductive age women are, only 11 to 20 pounds weight gain the whole pregnancy. Now, a lot of this weight is going to be, you know, weighted towards the third trimester when the baby is growing most rapidly um, and moms tend to put on the most weight. So they can't start off the pregnancy, you know, if they gain 10, 15 pounds in the first trimester, we're really off the bar curve here. So I like to start off by explaining that and really encouraging moms to eat healthy during the pregnancy. Um, Don't, gorge on things just because you're eating for two, but really focus on eating healthy, high quality foods. They're going to get you good nutrition. Um, And then let them know we're going to check in about their weight because putting them um, having too much weight gain during a pregnancy is going to put you at a higher risk for having difficulty with labor, having abnormalities with, Um, the baby potentially, if you were to develop gestational diabetes, it puts you at a higher risk, um, having things like a shoulder dystocia during labor, um, having baby need to go to the NICU, um, and needing a C-section even because baby can be too big to fit out, um, so a lot of bad things go along with excessive weight gain in pregnancy. Um, but I it's not a common thing for um, first time or even second time moms to know, so it's important to cover. Then let's talk about like foods to avoid and things. So foods to avoid during pregnancy, no unpasteurized dairy. So um, no queso fresco, no neighbors or family members, um, unpasteurized, Dairy cow's milk or goat milk or um, things like that. Everything needs to be pasteurized. Large fish they should avoid. And by large fish, particularly the fish that eat other fish. So the ones that are going to accumulate a lot of mercury and toxins. Swordfish, shark, king mackerel, tilefish, big eye tuna, just to name a few. It's going to depend on kind of where you live, Um and what's, what's fish you got around? No uncooked or undercooked meat or seafood. Just have a higher risk of transmitting diseases like hepatitis A um, and things that can be more serious during pregnancy. No uncooked deli meat. And this is one of the hardest ones for people to understand. Deli meat, I'm talking like lunch sliced tuna on your sandwich. Um, so any sliced lunch meat has a small chance of carrying listeria. And that's also the reason um, why you can't have the unpasteurized dairy. So listeria can be very severe during pregnancy and can be passed to the fetus. Um And causes birth defects. So um, any uh, lunch meat, deli meat needs to be cooked before, like recooked, like heated up, usually like panini style um, before they eat it. Um, So no cold um, sandwiches, subs, hoagies, any of that regardless. Um, And then obviously... No alcoholic beverages, <laughs> the general rule. Um, I will tell you, there are some studies in Europe and things that say that maybe a half a glass of wine here and there is fine. Um, I just tell people, I can't tell them that any amount of alcohol is safe if they are going to indulge just do so very carefully and in moderation. One thing we do know for sure is that excess intake can cause fetal alcohol syndrome. Uh, Let's talk about drugs, medications. So um, medications, I tell them ahead of time, just Call the office if you have any questions, if you're thinking about taking any over-the-counter medicines, or even if a medicine was prescribed by a doctor, not your OBGYN, um, and you just want to double-check, that's totally fine. Uh, Tylenol is okay when needed for um, minor aches and pains and headaches and things obviously your prenatal vitamin. Um, if you get pre- uh, get constipated during pregnancy, which is a very common thing, um, Colace is okay. Uh, most of the over-counter laxatives, but I usually tell them start with Colace. It's one of the more gentle ones. Um, and really no NSAIDs. So no um, Advil, Aleve, Motrin, um, or any of the things that are often found in a lot of cold medicine. So I usually tell them to call the office if they have a cold. We can make sure we get them something safe. But a lot of the DayQuil, Nyquil, like the combo meds, are going to have some form of NSAID in them. So I usually tell them to avoid all of those combos. Even in the winter, if they're not feeling well, just call us. We can we can give them a list of the right things um, or we can uh, prescribe them something that we know it only has the appropriate stuff in it. Um, the other question people often have is about exercise. So the general rule I tell them is nothing that could leave a bruise on your belly. So anything that could, that has a reasonable chance of making you fall because even fall from standing can leave a bruise on your belly. So anything that could make you fall from standing that could, you know, obviously kickboxing out of the question during pregnancy. Um, but running, uh, walking, swimming, that stuff is all fine. Um, a moderate amount of exercise leads to a healthier pregnancy and a healthier mom and baby. So we encourage you to get cardiovascular exercise, but just not, um, not anything that could predictably or reasonably lead you to uh, getting a bruiser, an injury to the abdomen. All right. So that is the first OB visit. So planned or desired pregnancy, options counseling if needed, but we didn't really cover that here. Um, full medical history exam with a pelvic exam, a pap smear and sexually transmitted infection testing, an ultrasound for dating if uh, you have that ability in the office, a discussion about um, aneuploidy screening, uh, and then pregnancy recommendations like weight gain, food, medications, and exercise. These are all the things I like to cover in the first OB visit. There's no reason it's usually a pretty long visit. But... Um, But I hope that gives you guys a little bit of insight into the prenatal counseling we do. We can also do some of this counseling if they come in for preconception counseling, but rarely does that ever happen at a resident clinic. Maybe if you're in some of the attendings private clinics, you'll get to see that. But uh, that's pretty much what I do for the first OB visit. If you guys have questions or comments, let us know. Subscribe to the podcast. Share it with friends. Uh, Let us know if there's uh, any other episodes you want us to uh, do in the upcoming future.